Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Don Reed, who has a solo show, That Don Reed Show, at the Marsh in Berkeley, and it's playing through April 28th. For more information, you can go to themarsh.org. Don Reed has done five solo shows. Seven now. I just thought of one on the way over here, but go ahead. Been a successful actor, A Different World, and The Cosby Show has written for television, has also been a producer of promos, has been the warm-up comedian for several sitcoms. There's a whole bunch of things you've done over the past few years. Uh, I went to your website and... You also give speeches to corporate events. Yes. Like Hillary Clinton. Does does that work? <laughs> like Hillary Clinton. They're nothing like Hillary Clinton's. <laughs> the last one I did was for the American Accounting Association. 3,000 accountants, professors who teach accounting, uh, actual accountants. They wanted to uh, hear about storytelling. And I was letting them know that if they let their, as professors or as even as clients, let some people in on their story and not just the good part, not that I'm just this amazing person, but also cover and be vulnerable enough to cover the parts that didn't go so well. And that will draw people much closer to you than just saying, listen to this story about how amazing I am. Point out also the major obstacles and the black holes you dropped into and it'll draw people closer via that process. Is it kind of a boilerplate speech or do do you change it every time you do it? It's kind of boilerplate, but it's got a lot of performance in it because it's kind of my life arc within there, covering a window of time when I was at UCLA and excited because I got recruited on a speech and debate scholarship, but then realizing, hey, I don't have anywhere to live, but then realizing I was just calling it nowhere to live, but it was actually homeless. So I was homeless while like a year and a half of college and just juggling it, sleeping at friends' houses, sleeping on campus in different areas and things like that. So it's kind of your life story, sort of with elements of East 14th Street and other shows you've done, too? A bit, yeah. Wrapped in this thing, and I'll try to explain this on the radio, and if we can get this picture in your head. My father showed me when I was a young guy a picture of him. He said, baby, this is me when I was like 11, 12 years old. And it's a picture of him in a tracksuit holding a huge trophy. And he said, I was really, really fast. But the reason why I won all my races is because I would always go for three feet past the finish line. Everybody's going for right here, finish line. I'm going for three feet past that. Do that when you're racing. Do that in life. Go for three feet past the finish line, and you do better than everybody every time. Now, I used to say four feet, but one time I ran into a wall. So don't go too far with it. So I go through the kind of circuitous route of my career and life and stuff. But on the back end, I reveal, I go back to that picture, and it's projected on the wall. And I said, He said, no, take a good look at this picture. You see that trophy I'm holding? That ain't no trophy. It's a coffee maker. The trophies weren't ready yet, but my mama had borrowed a camera and said, we're taking the pictures today. So she had me hold this coffee maker. I think it was still warm while I was holding it. Look behind my leg. She told me to hide the cord behind my leg. It's a percolator. 
it starts out with this, you know, motivational thing, and then it's got this circuitous root of me being homeless and fighting through entertainment elements with uh, The Tonight Show and ending on a good note, but then ending on you never knew the whole time. You're looking at this huge poster. My father's holding a coffee maker. So is this kind of, it sounds like sort of an offshoot of the kind of shows you do at the Marsh. In in many ways it is. However, it's kind of um, wrapped in just one portion of a show. I kind of bookended it with the story that my father showed me motivation via, you know, this picture of him. So you're kind of multitasking or... What's repurposing. Right repurposing. There's hey, the word. Hey, Re- hey, hey, repur- repurposing all your materials. So let's let's talk a little bit about this Don Reed show. What is the difference, and what is this show compared to the other six, five, four, whatever number of shows there are? Well, I didn't want people to confuse it with the Don Reed show, so I call it. It's called that Don Reed show. That's the name of it, that Don Reed show. I don't know. You look kind of like a little her. bit. If, if, she, I, I, if she were male and black, I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> At one point in the show, I do wear a blonde wig, so I don't want to give anything away. I really do. It's different because most of my shows were autobiographical uh, about growing up in the '70s in Oakland, the '80s in LA, and and so forth. And I did another show called DMV that's actually being developed into a half-hour comedy uh, with Evan Shapiro and Chrissy Mazio. But this show is straight up like going to see the Philip Wilson show or Carol Burnett show, uh, the throwback comedy shows with nice elements of SNL and in living color in there. So I do a monologue at the top, and then I start breaking into sketches that have a character-driven focus. But then I throw back into that window of time when we'd watch the older variety shows, and I actually sing. And I didn't actually ever sing in my shows. I would sing... Ask people. I do an impersonation, but now I sing for real in this show. People say, well, you can sing. I said, well, I can sing as Sammy Davis or somebody else, but I can't be trying to act like I'm singing. But now I'm actually singing, so it's worth it just to see that, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I hit some very, very funny uh, sketches, but I also hit uh, some dramatic sketches as well, which is uh, not like any of those shows. Do you veer toward the political at times? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I've got, a, I've got an old black guy who owns a bar, and it's called Shug's. And he says, uh, a lot of people, you know, just ain't got no common sense. You got to have some common sense. That's the reason why I think I had my bar so long. I got common sense. I tell you somebody right now who ain't got no common sense at all. He he called himself the the leader of our free world. And uh, uh, he said he won a wall. He said he won a wall. That's what he said. He said he won a wall. But now he went down to some metal slats. I think Pelosi offered him a beaded curtain or something like that. Uh, he's going to end up with some cellophanes. What are going to end up with? So I kind of hit on some political blazes by the characters commenting on what's happening in the political space. And you switch characters. The, the whole thing is scripted, though, right? Yeah, it's scripted with a freedom within it. So sometimes the character has a little more to say that night. And so uh, none of the shows are the same because I also have some improv chunks in there where I make up stories with the audience. You remember Mad Libs? Sure. Okay, where you, know, you write and you fill in the word. Well, I do that off the top of my head with the audience, and at the end, I wrap up and remember every beat that the audience added, which is, like, really hard. I don't know how I do it. Don't ask. (laughs) But on the other hand, it's probably a lot more fun than doing the same thing over and over every night. Yeah, it can be, but, you know, when you're doing a show like this, um, as opposed to a scripted autobiographical show, uh, there's always going to be nuances and really different things that happen within the body of the show because uh, you never know what, how the audience is going to react. You know, sometimes they're, they can be really quiet and appreciative 
which is not fantastic. And sometimes they're screaming, and so you end up adding nuances you never intended to. You've also done stand-up, which means that you kind of understand how to deal with a joke if it doesn't land. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Usually if a joke doesn't land, I speed up. The tendency of most comics, I mean, you just start speed, kind of jet into the next joke, or you can spend some time on how bad that joke was. And Johnny Carson was probably the best at that ever. Uh, But that's uh, another avenue you can go with. It's like, okay, you you, you guys felt that, right? You felt that. I promise you, I won't do that to you again. I promise I won't. (laughs) And then you might, but whatever. You might, but whatever. (laughs) Lie. Let's go back a little bit to your origins as an entertainer. You got your break. You were discovered in 1988, and on Wikipedia it says, a television person discovered you, but it refuses to name who it is. Who was it? Right, 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 right. And this opens a whole ball of stuff. It kind of began with Sinbad. Sinbad was the intro of the person who made things happen immediately, and that was Bill Cosby. Exactly right. And so the thing about that whole dynamic is, wow, okay, clearly some Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde energy within there somehow because, I mean, I can't tell you how kind he was to me, how much he helped my career, how much he helped orchestrate me getting on the college circuit and being booked at 100 colleges a year, uh, having them rewrite the episode for me to guest star on The Cosby Show that week. He saw me on a Saturday Next week, uh, Sinbad called me and said, Cosby wants you on the show uh, next week. I was like, yeah, right. I hung up on him because we used to call each other and pretend like we were exactly, hi, this is Bob from Paramount. Sinbad, I've got a deal for you you will not believe. This is Don. And we'd hang up on each other. So I thought he was joking. Turned out it was real. They rewrote the episode to accommodate one of the uh, bits that I do, uh, take off on kung fu and karate movies, and I do the dubbing and all that kind of stuff. I fly there. First class, everything. I go to his dressing room. He's like, what size shoe you wear? I said, 12. He said, you're in luck. Reeboks, our friend. He gave me all these box shoes. Everything you tried on this week, all the wardrobe, that's all yours. Staying at the suite on the top floor, he's like, if I find out you try to spend a dime, I'm going to be so upset with you. And when we finish shooting here, you want to stay a week or so with some friends? No problem. Giving to me that level, giving the colleges. But then somehow... There's this other side that no one knew about, well, that I didn't know about. Obviously, some women knew about Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, many, sure. many women, yeah. It's kind of weird because I was a fan of his back in the days of I Spy. I mean, he was right, a great yeah. comedian. And then he, I wasn't really into Cosby's show. It was a little bit too... Mainstream, bo- too Mainstream, boring, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, he had this reputation, yet underneath it all, he was paying people off and he was doing these terrible things to women. When you found out about it, I mean, you must have thought, nah, couldn't be. Yeah. I said, it's not even possible. I knew there um, could be a chance there were some philandering and some uh, infidelity in the mix. Uh, I knew that could be a, a, a possibility. I had challenges with that myself in my life with the examples my father set for me. So that wasn't a stretch for my brain at all. But in terms of uh, the extent of it and how many, uh, it it piled up to a level where one could not ignore or defend what had gone down. It's just like too many, you know. Which means, I guess, that the idea of 
doing a Bill Cosby impression as you used to do is kind of not something you would do now. See, the thing is, I can't do it anymore, man. Oh, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking over the list of your impressions. When you're doing an impression, most of us just kind of try imitating. But I guess there's some kind of art to breaking down a particular voice and rebuilding it up to make it sound like an impression. Is that true? Or is it just kind of like whatever? It's a mixture. Sometimes your ear, it's got to be someone with a distinctive voice, be they human, animal, whatever it is you're impersonating. The first thing I learned to mimic was a bird. And I was in a music class, and our music class in the Oakland hood had no instruments. So our music class was an instructor, Mr. Meyer, sitting in the class and playing albums and saying, if we could afford a trumpet, it would sound like this. If we school had any kind of budget and he had an attitude about it, then we'd uh, it would sound like this. And I mimicked some of the some of the things in class. But one day I discovered I could do this. And the day I figured out I could do that, the instructor said, I think there's a bird trapped in the room. As soon as we get rid of that, we'll continue. And I never told him it was me, and the people around me never told. And ever I wanted to disrupt the class at some point, I just do the bird sound. But that was like a, based on ear, directly like hearing something and repeating it back. And then sometimes it's about kind of shelving your voice. Like I do a bit in the show about that there's certain cartoon characters from the 60s, 70s, and 80s whose their careers are dead. There's nothing happening, but one cartoon character is going to make himself relevant, Popeye the Sailor Man. I say, Popeye the Sailor Man, rapping. And it's about shelving your voice. Hey, Olive. Learn placement in your throat for certain voices. That helps a lot. And then um, sometimes it's uh, a matter of picking up the mannerisms, the visual mannerisms of somebody and then you can kind of take on the voice like uh, I do Jesse Jackson in the show saying he's um, going to run for president again in 2020. And he's talking about, what have you been doing, Jesse? He's like, I've been doing a lot of motivational speaking. I've been working with different uh, organizations and charities. Um, and often they have me work with sports franchises. I've been working with the Golden State Warriors. What I do is I go in and I motivate them at halftime. I say, it's halftime. I said it's halftime. The other team is up by now. They're doing fine. We're behind. I just like load in his physicality first, and then the voice comes with it. Can you do uh, Barack Obama? I cannot do Barack. You know, here's the thing. I feel like if I worked on Barack, I could do him. But I think I had, um, I had him on such a high level, I didn't really think about finding ways. I think there's a guy named uh, Jay Lamont who's found a way to... Make it funny, because comedy is about things going wrong, not going right. And I, I have this glowing review of him that plays right. in my head, you know? And I don't know what I would actually do, have him do that would make him be doing something wrong that would be funny. But now that you said that, I think I, I've got a challenge. When I come <laughs> back here, I'm going to have him down, I guarantee you. <laughs> what about someone like Trump? It's almost as if you can't really do a parody without it sounding like him, as we learned from Alec Baldwin. I thought about trying to create a, a black Trump brump. I wasn't even sure what I was going to call it. And then I realized I made it through the entire show without saying his name one time. 
and I was excited about that. I referred to who he was, leader of a free world, and made fun that way. But by being able to not say his name in the whole show, I think is a uh, something to celebrate, uh, which is hard for some comics to do with him being so much in the in the news. So uh, that's where I'm standing on my Trump impersonation now. It's also an issue because it's it's um, kind of shooting fish in a barrel in a way to go after Trump, and at the same time, life goes on without him. Yes, you know what some comics are telling me to be specific about doing material about uh, Trump. They said it started out strong that they were killing the same jokes they were killing with doing Trump. It's like people come to a comedy club now or an entertainment venue like. I came to escape that. So those very same jokes get nothing. Get nothing at all. No laughter at all, no response, no woohoo. You know, I think you could probably throw in a line uh, and reference and say, you know who I'm talking about, and that could still work. But if you actually say his name, the audience goes, any liberal audience. I'm not sure how many non-liberal audiences there are for a comedy club these days. I don't know. I mean, do you run into that much? No, um, but you run into that in the corporate world. An organization say, we have you here. And if you don't mind, can we go over the fact that you please don't make fun of our, our dear, dear, fine president? I don't need to be working here. <laughs> I don't need this gig. Don Reed, let's go back and let's talk a little bit about your background because as I was reading up, particularly reading about East 14th Street, your history is pretty extraordinary. You grew up in Oakland. You had a father who you later found out was a pimp Yes. after the divorce from your mother and your stepfather was a Jehovah's Witness who used to take you around. Is that right? <laughs> oh, yes, that's so true. Take me around. <laughs> wow. Yeah, um, I say uh, he was in that religion that rhymed with Tehovah Sitnesses, so I don't have to say it again, right? Yeah, it was a very pressurized dynamic and had to go door to door, sometimes 100 hours a month, spreading the word. 100 hours a month, you'd log it. You'd log it. Were you into it at all? Uh, not at the beginning at all. I mean, really. And having to go... Sometimes they'd say, you brothers and sisters need to understand that next week we're going to go to the Fruitvale area. I'm like, no, not Fruitvale. That's where all the people from my school are. So I would literally knock on doors. People go like, ah, Don, what are you doing here? One day we knocked on a a door. There was this kid named uh, Waddell, and he had a lot. He had a a list. We said, listen, Don. So you want to say over Sydney, huh? So so, so, so what do you want to talk to me about? I'm like, "Uh, I want to talk to you. This morning about everlasting life. Everlasting life? What kind of bull is that? What are you talking about, man? And it was so difficult because I had a crush on his sister. And he's like, hold on just a second, Don. Wait right here. Sandra, Sandra, read down here trying to sell me some God books. I'm like, don't call her. She's down. She's like, oh, what you doing down here? Oh, my God, Don. Oh, my God, you knocking on doors? And then I go to school. That Monday, like, saw you knocking on doors. Everybody, saw you knocking on doors. Saw you knock- I saw you, man. I saw you knocking on doors. I saw you. Oh, my God. Yeah, you knock, knock, knock. So it was quite a challenge in that window. Then I started giving speeches in the congregation. And then a couple of girls were going, like, that was very good, brother. That was very good. And it got me a little attention. I was like, wait a minute. Maybe this is okay. But I'm thinking about something different. I'd literally be sitting in the meeting going, like, hmm, 
that sister's kind of cute over there. When I'm supposed to be kind of paying attention, but I would make sure I front loaded and answered enough questions from the watchtower or an awake, and then I could let my imagination run free, which was a good idea. At what point did you finally tell him, no, I'm not doing this anymore? I got in big trouble. My stepfather was super, super strict for no reason and over the top strict. And he said, uh, he said, hey, what did you have for, uh, for lunch today? I said, uh, I uh, had a tuna sandwich. He said, and, uh, what kind of fruit did you have? I said, I had an orange. He said, uh, what did you do with the orange peels? I said, I, I threw them on the ground. He said, yeah, I know you did because I followed you on your way to school. And I saw you throwing the orange peels on the ground. And it looks like somebody's got a, a whooping coming. I'm like, but orange peels are biodegradable. He's like, yeah, but they still bring shame on the family. And he ended up giving me this extensive whipping over orange peels. I'm like, are you supposed to be a man of God or whatever you call it? And this is our interaction. And so each Sunday in the meantime, after knocking on doors, I was going over my father's house and seeing this other world of partying and cocktailing. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, I found out later my father was basically having an employee meeting in his living room every uh, Sunday. I didn't know that, though. And so the dichotomy of knocking on doors and the pressure from school and my stepfather and then going over to my father's house and seeing all this freedom was like, whoa, I want to do this. And I thought it would be complete freedom. And when I first moved over there, it was. But then my father... The outlaw ended up pulling the reins and saying, uh, what's going on with college? I was like, hey, I thought you said I could do whatever I wanted. He's like, yeah, look like you want to be in college, so let's do that. So it was odd that he's the one who pushed me. To UCLA. To UCLA, exactly, yeah. And then you didn't have a place to live. I was on a partial scholarship, which translates into not enough money. I was like kind of working it out. I, I kept my clothes clean. And I found some nice hiding places, and I would hang out with people and have them cracking up, you know, drinking and partying in their dorm room. And they said, oh, you might as well crash here. And I just do that at different dorms and different apartments. And my brother had a friend who lived in Hollywood who was helping out. I told him that I had a dorm room. And I told people at the dorms that I live with my friend. And so I could kind of play it back and forth. When I'm at his place, we're doing drugs drinking, partying into the night. And he'd say, hey, uh, you want to stay here? I'm like, uh, I might as well. I really didn't have anywhere to go, but I say, uh, I might as well. And, and then it got kind of rough after this one gal on campus said, she just zeroed in on me. She's like, hey, Don, where do you live? Where do you live, Don? I'm like, uh, that's not important. She said, no, I want to know, because I know you don't live in this dorm. Check the registry next door. You don't live over there. Where do you live, Don? I said, uh, well, my brother's friend in Hollywood. And she just kind of pressed it down to the point where she was able to note that I didn't have a dorm over here. And so that cut that out. So then I started sleeping on the bus sometimes and hanging out in restaurants till they close and stuff like that. And what eventually happened? How'd you get a place to live? Uh, I got a place to live by looking in the classifieds. The first thing that was offered was a job as a stripper. And I, I weighed like 11 pounds, had an Afro that was not the best one. And so I tried out to be a stripper, which didn't go very fantastically. Uh, but the next classified ad after I tried out that I found was serving breakfast to the elderly in a retirement hotel. 
And so I moved into this retirement hotel in L.A. in 83 and served breakfast to the elderly for five years. And I served them breakfast, and they served me stories every day. So, Don Reed, at what point did you go, okay, I'm going to try getting in front of an audience and doing stand-up? Well, while I was at UCLA in that speech and debate scholarship, that door knocking actually paid off. That's how I ended up being a, a, a fairly nice uh, speaker to get on the college circuit. On the college circuit, uh, they had debate, speech and debate, and they had different events, informative, persuasive, and they had this humorous event where you'd give a funny speech. Well, I gave that funny speech over the years and kind of over the years you change it each season, and I got really good at it, and so... I took my little comedy speech uh, down to a comedy club and died the death of a million men. <laughs> it was not good at all. And I realized, wait, it's not a speech. It's this other living, breathing, moving thing. And the next year, I won the national championship uh, on the collegiate level uh, with everybody there, Duke, Yale, everybody. Was there. And I won first place. And they said, you need to hit the clubs. So then I went to the clubs and just hung out every week, watch, watch, watch. And I started doing little three-minute sets and five-minute sets while I was at the uh, retirement hotel. Uh, It sounds as if watching a show like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel kind of gives an idea of what it's like. Is that right? That's pretty accurate. And I I particularly like the dynamic uh, with the woman managing her and trying to aid uh, her career. And someone who's actually in her corner and trying to help her out because I had some experiences that were like, yo, you would not believe what some managers uh, try to pull or do pull. Johnny Carson had two months left on The Tonight Show. Robert Townsend, the writer-director, called me. I had been on his HBO special, and he said, Johnny Carson called me at home, and he wants you on The Tonight Show before he leaves. He wants you to be one of the last people he salutes off into you know, the stratosphere. And I told my manager, hey, call She's like, I'm on it. Then she called me back a couple of days later. She's like, as far as I can get is to the, the, the booker, and he wants to see you do two or three minutes to see if you're good enough. I said, no, no, no. Johnny Carson handpicked me. He wants me on the show before he goes. She said, I'll try again. She calls me back about a week later and says, I can't get through. I, I tried and tried, but it looks like it's not going to happen. I'm like, what are you talking about? Try again. She's like, it looks like it's not going to happen, Don. And so... Two months pass, May 1992, Johnny Carson goes off the air. I didn't do The Tonight Show. And uh, about maybe a month later, I got a call from my manager's office. And it was a guy who was an assistant, kind of a gopher. He'd get coffee, book our flights, mm-hmm. put toner in the copy or stuff like that. He called me. He said, hey, Don, um, I need to tell you something. Uh, she never called Johnny's office. She never called there's another comic she wanted on, a white comic, and she was pushing for that, but she did not call for you. She also, Don, sat us down and said, we don't care if Don gets a movie or a television show or anything. long as Don is booked on the road, he's the workhorse. The lights are on, the lease is paid. That's his role with his company. He said, you got to go. And so I took off and kept going for three feet past the finish line, kept going, kept going, kept going. And oddly enough, 20, I guess it was 21 years later, something like that, I got a phone call from a producer at The Tonight Show. And he said, um, hey, the opening act warm-up comedian gig has opened up. And 
Tons of comments going to be rolling forward. It's crazy great money. You're in town. You don't have to travel all over the place. You can be around your family. Are you interested? I'm like, absolutely. And he said, I can't give you the gig, but I can get you down to the last five comics. So he got me down to the last three. One guy went the first day. I went the second day when I was done. They said, we don't care. It's coming tomorrow. It's yours. Negotiate it. Great money. Boom. Locked it in. The magic of that story is the little gopher who worked in the office 20 years before had become a producer at The Tonight Show. And he said, Don, you deserve this. So he gave it back to you yes, finally. He did. Yes, after he did. For all those years. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it was, it was pretty beautiful. And I was on the show and did some scenes with um, Jay Leno as well. For over a thousand episodes, five years, we were just you know wheeling them out every day. Could you do Johnny Carson or Jay Leno? Uh, hey Don, let me let me ask you something, Don. Um, I want to ask you something. The cool thing about Jay, because you know there was a little war between the Conan field, and uh, Jay didn't have anything to do with that insanity. They came to Jay and they said, uh, "Hey, uh, we're giving the show to Conan in in five years," and he said. Uh, could you wait till I drop down a little bit? I'm number one. Is it? No, you're kind of you're kind of old. He's like, yeah, we, we didn't have to push me out. But they said we're giving them the show in five years. And in the fifth year, the the pass happened. They said, hey, don't worry, we're going to give you a show at ten o'clock. It's going to be amazing. He's like, that's never going to work. He said, no, 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 no. Yes, it will. So Jay um, waits to get ready for a ten o'clock show. Conan starts, the ratings plummet. Vroom. Jay's not even on the air yet. Jay starts doing the 10 o'clock show. It doesn't help anything at all. And then they go to Jay and say, would you take the show back? He said, I didn't want to leave in the first place. Of course I'll take it back. And he took it back. But people are like, no, no, no. Look how he's screwed Conan over. They had nothing to do with screwing Conan. He didn't want to leave. They said, would you leave? He plummeted, and he said, would you come back? He's like, oh, it went straight back to number one. And he was around for another 10 years or something? Let's see, from uh, no, like 2009 to 2014. Whatever. Another five years. Yeah, 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 another five years. Um, but it's like so many great stories about, for real, you know, and I get nothing from Jay now, so I could just stop talking right now, but I want people to know some of the things he did. He, uh, he cut his salary from $30 million a year to fifteen to save a bunch of jobs. He worked specifically to get me raises when they were saying, like, there's no bumps happening. When there were pay cuts, I never got a pay cut. And he specifically told me I wasn't going to get one. And then at the end of the show, when there was uh, these golden parachutes everybody was getting, they're like, well, you know, the warm-up guy isn't going to get one, right? And he would always ask me, like, hey, how, how are they treating you over there? I said, like, well, I asked for a raise, but they said, no. He said, go ask them again. Go ask them again today. And he would say that. And then after I wasn't going to get the golden paratree, he's like, go ask him again. Yes, uh, Don, we spoke to Jay, so uh, we made an error overlooking you. Will these numbers be fine? I'm like, those numbers are great. (laughs) (laughs) Don Reed Bartlett is a show that's on Amazon. The curious thing about it, I don't want to, you know, I never heard of it. <laughs> that is so funny. No one ever says that. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> you know, so I went on I went on to my Amazon Prime and there it was. And I'm thinking this never appeared. I think it's got to do with algorithms because Netflix and Amazon give you more of what you want even though you actually want something else. Right. Okay, you know, right. Something you know. different, right. So, but I I don't recall ever seeing 
a Bartlett, and there it was. So am I like out in the universe and somewhere else that I should have seen it? Am I an outlier? No, no I don't think so. I, I'm smiling so hard right now. People can't see that on the radio, but I'm just smiling so hard. I love the, like, I never heard of it. Um, <laughs> they've really got these algorithms well laced. <laughs> laser in on what they think you will love based on what you watched. How they do that, I, I, that's one of the things I never would have thought of. I might have thought of the wheel and some other inventions, but I never would have thought of an algorithm to figure out what shows you want to watch. That never would have happened. But the show is on Amazon Prime right now. It's about an advertising agency that sucks, and I played the boss on the show. It was co-financed and recurring role stars Lin-Manuel Miranda from Hamilton. It's a very funny show. It's a relationship-driven show. Uh, there's a love story in there. There's office dynamics, of course. But it was really fun. We shot four in San Francisco, four episodes in San Francisco, and two in New York, where Lynn Manuel uh, was uh, the Saturday after he bowed on Broadway with Hamilton. That Tuesday, he was on the set with us uh, shooting uh, Bartlett. And he's really funny in the show as well. Is, was the show renewed, or is it just the one season? Or? We did six episodes, and we'll find out at some point. You never know when they're going to roll them back in. They don't always go immediately back-to-back year-to-year. Okay, so I don't know how to do it on Amazon, but the way to break the algorithm on Netflix. Okay. Okay. Because what happened was, okay, so I have like four or five different names that I use on Netflix. You can create any number of accounts, right? So I've been using one of them, and then I went back to an old one that I hadn't used. And I realized that there were an entirely different set of movies and shows. <laughs> for that guy? <laughs> for that guy, based on stuff that I watched five years ago. And it suddenly occurred to me that if you want to break the algorithm, what you do is create a new person. It's just you, right? <laughs> you go on there and watch a couple of things that you would never watch, ever. <laughs> And you'll find out that there's an entirely different universe of stuff on Netflix that you didn't know existed. Okay, so I'm going to interview you for a second. Have you ever done stand-up? No. No? Uh, no, I mean, I've done a couple of... Uh, I've done a couple of interviews in front of an audience, just a KPFA. You've done humorous storytelling nights before? Like storytelling night and told a funny story? Have I ever done that? Sometimes I, I I remember telling the story of um, my very bizarre dog to my mother, and she could not catch her breath. She was laughing so hard. But I've never done that in front of an audience. I think you should try it. I think you should try it. I'm just going to go on the record right now that you should try a five-minute storytelling night, maybe you know, moth story slam or something like that, snap judgment, just to toss it out there, to say you did it within your lifetime, because I think you could work it. Really? Yeah. Okay. I think that's m- why I'm here today, to let you know that. Yeah, you should try. You really should. Well, I'll think about it. Um, I think the marsh might have something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I can hook you up. Let me look at my list of things to ask you, which I can barely read. Homeless, physical, psychological abuse. So you had physical, psych- psychological abuse. That's also on this list here. Um, let's see. Did we talk about racism? No, we haven't talked about racism. Do you talk about racism much on your show? Yeah, in this show right now, I have a character. (laughs) I I note some people start dying laughing right away. Like the black audience members, Latino audience, start laughing right away. I notice some of my my white brothers and sisters, they like, hold on for a second. That's not me. That's not me. You heard of Barbecue Becky 
the woman who went down the Lake Merritt and told the African-American men, you shouldn't be barbecuing Oh, yeah, here. yeah, I remember. Right. Then yeah. you got this, uh, I think they called her uh, Lemonade Linda or something. She stopped a little African-American girl from selling water. Like, you shouldn't be doing that. You have a license to sell lemonade or water around here. So I created this character called um, Sherry the Suburban Sheriff. And I wear a blonde wig, and she's just looking out her window, calling 911 on people who are walking by. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to call now. Yes, uh, 911. Um, this is Sherry at 6120. Oh, you already have my number in the system because I call so often. Very well. So look here. I'm looking out my window right now. And, you know, they say, um, just doing my civic duty, they say, if you see something, say something. I see an African-American individual, African-American individual. He's dressed in dark clothing. He's carrying some kind of bag, more than likely for stolen property. And he's surreptitiously going house to house to house. You see, that's the mailman. Okay, very good. Very good. Very good. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. And that's her whole avenue while she's uh, on the phone. And she's trying to lock in on... Uh, black people think she's doing wrong, but they're going about their normal everyday business. And so that gets a nice little slap on uh, racism. How do you switch gears from one segue from one character to another and make it smooth? Is there a trick to that? Well, I don't stay on stage the whole time. That's aiding in this particular show. When I do stand up, you just snap it right into the next one. But on this show, uh, my son created the theme music. And I'm able to uh, finish a sketch. The lights go down. I go make a little shift of a, a nuance of wardrobe, be it a hat or a scarf or whatever it may be. And then the next beat of music comes in and the next scene starts with the lights coming up. So the transitions are musically driven. You've been doing a lot of voices in this interview. I assume you do a lot of cartoon work. Yeah, I did. Um Quite a bit. Did uh, Spider-Man, right? Yeah, Spider-Man. I was Dr. Clay Marks. I was a professor that um, uh, Spider-Man would come in and talk to him like, uh, Spider-Man, you have to understand, the situation is, is, is frantic right now. We've got to work this out. It was one of those, you know, alarmist type guys. And then uh, one really fun one was I did, uh, I was Elvis Rock for the Flintstones. And the director, the director wanted to break ground in some way. And so Elvis Rock was a white character in, you know, their little bearskin stuff they wear with the spots. The, the um, special was I Yabba Dabba Do. It was about P Pebbles and Bam Bam getting married, and I played Elvis Rock, who married them in a chapel. Oh, thank you very much. You're going to get married right now? And it was fun that when we went to the table read, I saw the... Original Wilma, she had a cane. She's like 70-something. That's the thing about voiceover. If you can still do the voice, you keep the role. It's not like, you know, Hollywood where they push you out. Jean Vanderpile, I think. I think you might have that right but because she, she did a ton of other voices on the show as well. That was kind of cool because we came to the table read. They said, and Elvis Rock right there, and there's black me going like, yes, I'm Elvis Rock. How cool is this? And like, it's really speaks to what voiceover can do when people are willing to break the rules. Is there a difference between black and white voices? You mean in terms of like being hired for characters? Well, partly in terms of being like hired for characters. I mean, obviously there are accent differences that you can get rid of because that's what you do. 
you know, it's created right. different voices. But in terms of getting hired and in terms of there being an actual timber difference in voices. It can be a timber difference, but it's more of a shift in cadence, I would say, more more in cadence and so in, in actual the actual language that comes out. Urban characters have a lot of slang, a lot of words I haven't even heard of. In fact, I don't get hired for a lot of African-American or black work, not much at all, because there's some guys who authentically will say, yeah, check this out, man, the brand new Ford Fiesta. Oh, you got to get in it, you know. Right. I can kind of pull it off, and sometimes if I know, like, the bookers very well, I'll do it. But there's some guys who just, that's their natural speaking flow. The thing I've been getting the most work at is, and uh, made a nice little chunk off of this, being the animal in a project or a, a monster or a dinosaur in a project. There was a show, um, uh, Two Broke Girls. Uh, they had a cat on the show, and the cat didn't speak, but they wanted to try and get different emotional flows out of a cat. If a cat was trying to say it was angry, if a cat was like question marks, things of that nature, and the cat was kind of uh, easy, and the cat would get pregnant every four episodes. The cat was pregnant again, or whatever window of time that cats flip over. And so she would be giving birth some episodes, and I had to, and all those kind of things. So that and dogs, I'm getting a lot more of that work. And I like having that lane, that call Don, he could do that area, because it allows the agency to see you as something specific rather than in everything. So you get a lot of get a lot of work that way. Get a lot of work that way, yes. Yeah. Now, what about what I was what you mentioned before is in, in terms of how they deal with black or white voiceover. For the most part, the production company is trying to write in the nicest way. We want a black person, so they're saying uh, we would like to have an individual who has an urban flair, if you will, um, a, a, an ability to speak the language of a specific area in which individuals are uh, interacting in a hip-hop tone. So it's always like this dance around to say, we need a brother. We need a black guy <laughs> for, the, for the part, you know. Do, do they, would they discriminate if they wanted? I'm sure you could do a Jewish accent if you, if you wanted. I, there's a guy, there's a guy, he's giving me the spilkers. This guy who sits over here every day, I got a situation with this guy, I've got a situation. I know a guy named George over the years, and that's how I happen to know how to do that. But that's the magic of being able to do this kind of solo work, is because I can be anyone that I've created or presented a story for. And for sure they limit you in those areas. And sometimes, for example, if you're doing something uh, very serious, in my mind, it could be kind of inappropriate to do something, say, about um, the Holocaust or slavery and have somebody else of another background, religion, racial culture play that role. Right. It seems like so, not appropriate. So you couldn't do a Holocaust, but you could do Southern lynching. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. In the Kipling Hotel, uh, there's a story. People go on YouTube and look up the 
Snap Judgment, the Kipling Hotel, I actually do a Jewish guy who I met while telling a straight story about a guy I met. He told me a story about being in a concentration camp. And I do that guy explaining a story, but I can't imagine like trying to be, it's not realistic at all to be saying, I was in a concentration camp or a brother. I don't, I don't know. Did they have any black people in concentration camps? <laughs> not that I know of at all. <laughs> Black explaining the Holocaust. <laughs> exactly. What is that, right? <laughs> Don Reed, we're pretty much out of time here. A couple of quick questions. Um, you were on Mad TV? No, Mad TV executives created a show called The Rerun Show. That was a fun show. The Rerun Show, we took old sitcoms, sitcoms you don't like, sitcoms and a cast of Saturday Night Live type players would redo like five-minute chunks of nostalgic television. And we say the same exact lines and do their voices, but we'd have other things going on that gave it double meanings or played off the fact that someone's, someone's height or like the way that they spoke, taking it way over the top. We did different strokes, and I played Willis. A gal played, played a, you know, the little guy. Gary Coleman. Yeah, Gary Coleman's character. A black girl in Afrowick played him on her knees in his whole little outfit and stuff. <laughs> I played his brother Willis as a bad actor. So all of my lines were said, hey, we cannot go in there right now. We're going to be in huge trouble. This is just not right. So it was a way to see the same show but play off elements that um, we blow out of proportion. Is that available anywhere? The rerun show is available on YouTube for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the show was really strong. And then uh, one executive, we were getting uh, 9 million viewers in the summer on NBC. In the summer. That's actually great numbers. And I was at executive there for a while, so I know about that. But we were getting great numbers and we were making fun of all the different, you know, Partridge Family, Brady Bunch, um, 227, whatever show. And one executive said, uh, I want to see how far it can go. And so he started having us doing, we jumped the shark in the first 13 episodes. And he said, i like to see uh, Saved by the Bell as Star Wars. Like, huh? And so now all the characters you know, they had to link into what would... Slater be like, what would this character be like if they were in Star Wars? We did Married with Children as Planet of the Apes. Like, what are you talking about? He tried to double shelve it, something you might do maybe in like the fifth or sixth season for fun. It was awful idea. Well, you know what it, it is, I think, is that what I've learned of 30 years of doing interviews with writers and people various industries is that the best creativity the ideas come from the people who have to do the work, not from the suits. They can't come from the suits. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And somehow they still find a way to shoehorn their dynamic into it because they're passing out the money. So they think they're creative, but they're just the suits. I mean, the, the suits are important. Yes. You know, but creativity happens from within. It's something that whatever it is, it's a spark. Yes, it comes from within. And then you come across from time to time certain executives who really get it. And their whole thing always usually ends with, here are my notes, take those or throw them in the garbage. If they say that, then they're actually listening, they're actually engaging, and they usually have 
great notes. Sort of like um, difference between telling somebody what they should be doing, an actor, let's say, or saying, well, you know, you got to do it your own way, but this is what I'd like you to get toward. And then the actor is free to experiment and figure it out. Looks like you could direct as well. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly the way an actor likes to be spoken to. Don Reed, that Don Reed show plays through April 28th, unless it's extended into 2021. Uh, (laughs) What have you got coming up? Possibly a second season of Bartlett? Yes, and I'm going to be on tour with Snap Judgment in Dallas and Austin and wherever else we're going. That's a radio show? Yeah, that's an NPR show that we do live at like 3,000 seaters and tell true tales with a live band soundtracking as we tell our tales. And that, I guess, can be found on podcasts. Uh, yes, there's a lot. If you go to snapjudgment.org. Also, the DMV, which I had a solo show, I played nine characters waiting in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Uh, that's been written as a half hour that I'm shopping now with Evan Shapiro, who was at NBC Streaming and Sundance Channel. And the Kipling Hotel, I've written as a one-hour comic drama and that's over at Sony right now. So things are getting kind of cool. What is the name of your website? DonReadComedy.com. 